Hey everyone, welcome back. So glad to join us today. Um, today I'm joined by Josh Yen of Apologetics for All. We're going to take a look at a God's Engineer video where he responds to Alan Parr on the cosmological argument. So Josh, what's up man? How's it going? I'm doing good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. Another day. A little tired. Um, it's really sad that I can never tag you in the, like, the description of the YouTube video, which is kind of annoying. Um, I don't know why, but YouTube doesn't like the name Apologetics for All, so I can never like give you the credit with this video. Um, <laughs> But, no, I'm hyped. This is going to be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to this response. So, yeah. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. So, today what we're doing is Godless Engineer has a video responding to Alan Parr. They said before about the cosmological argument for God. Um, Josh and I are just going to look through a little bit of this video. Um, so, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get into it in just a moment. But I just want to say, like, preliminary, like, I really enjoy John and his content. Like, uh, if you know John, like, he's a friend of the channel. I appreciate him a lot. We had a good conversation like a month ago about like how Christians and atheists can have better conversations. And like, I have a lot of love and respect for the guy. Like I consider him a friend. Um, so lots of good things to say. Obviously, like I have this like, you know, like cool catchy thumbnail where I'm like, Godless engineer is wrong. Ha ha ha. Like, um, like, you know, like I, so like, I think he's wrong here, but like I value him a lot and I value, value his insight, which is why we're making this response. Um, so yeah, Josh, do you have any like preliminary insights before we get rolling? Yeah, I think that's just such a great idea to kind of really build dialogue across the board. We, it's very easy to see all like the atheist YouTubers on one cap and all the, the like the Christian YouTubers on one cap. And it's like kind of this war of the worlds or something situation. But it's actually there's a lot more like discussion between them. And it's really nice to have discussions with like atheists as well. So like for those watching, like if, if you don't, if you, if you want to test yourself, the best way to do it is to discuss it with other people. Like don't be afraid. Like the best way to know other people is to have dialogue and interact, interaction with them. That's just very important, very fun. Yeah, no, I totally do agree. Like, I don't see this as like my my sixty minutes where I try to destroy Godless Engineer for all of eternity, but rather just kind of like looking at his ideas, building upon them, and just trying to get to like um, the facts of the matter. Because there's some parts where I agree with him, and there's some parts where I don't. Um, so it should be a lot of fun. Um, you ready to get this thing rolling, Josh? Sure, sounds like a good idea. So what we're gonna do first is play a little clip where he's gonna Alan Parr is gonna introduce the argument that John responds to just to kind of lay context for um, what's gonna go on in the rest of this video. The first one we'll look at was, is what's called the cosmological argument, and this word comes from the idea of cosmos or the universe. Now I'm gonna go ahead and read an excerpt from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book, which describes it in this way. He says, "Every known thing in the universe has a cause; therefore, it reasons the universe itself must also have a cause." And the cause of such a great universe can only be God. So, so what do you think? I'm just going to try to go back like five seconds here so we can pull up um, his argument that Parr is using. But what are your thoughts on this argument, Josh? First thing I have to say is editing is great. He manages to look to the side and it looks like his actual display is actually part of the real <laughs> existence. I could never do that if you asked me to make something that stylish. But I have to admit, this, this formulation is quite poor. I, of course, he uses this as a quote. So he's like quoting it from this book and then... After that, defends it as if it's a kalam. So I think we should just kind of treat as if he has the normal kalam syllogism instead of this syllogism we see on the screen. But of course, if you're just critiquing this screen, it is a very weak argument, or at least a very yeah, simple yeah. formulation of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Like this is kind of like I actually had never seen this like specific formulation of the cosmological argument until I um, looked at this video um, that John made. So, but I mean, John seems to treat it like, like a Kalam like argument. Um, so I think it's a fair assessment of what's going on here. So that's interesting. Things. I do want to give a warning. Um, like in terms of like, there might be explicit language, like John does swear a little bit. So if you have like the little kid with you, just keep that in mind as we keep on going. Um, but yeah, so 
anything else, Josh? Or do you want to get into like John's first critiques? So I do want to add the commentary note on the side. It's not m more specifically about this, but it's that when we see these like six arguments for God video, I've made one of these in the past, is that normally when we're seeing these videos, we shouldn't treat them as like, oh, these are the most powerful formulations of them. Because I think a lot of times atheist YouTubers find one of these videos and critique them and then end up strawmanning the argument because what the person presenting it is doing is not to present, oh, let, this is the strongest formulation of the individual argument you go to, like the Kalam cosmological argument, one of the simplest cosmological arguments, is actually a book which is like, what, 100, 200 pages long. So, so I mean, like, the idea of these videos is to just give like an introductory notice into each of the arguments. So then like when people try to like argue against it, it is like a very like new or very kind of simple presentation and it's hard to view it as an actual kind of crazy presentation of the complexity of the argument. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. Like, obviously, like, we're dealing with a short video here, but, like, this is YouTube. Like, we're not going to get probably get into the nitty depths of, like, modal metaphysics and whatnot. Um, so, but there's, it's interesting just, like, to kind of look at everything that's going on here. Um, but let's get into this first part um, where John's going to talk about, like, the causal principle and science and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, so let's play the clip. One second here, and here we go. Normally, we experience a cause preceding an effect. The inclination is that that is how it always happens. We could somewhat compare this to the flow of time. One unit of time precedes the next unit of time in an orderly fashion. And this would be the normal way that we experience time. But we do know that that's not always how time flows. Einstein, for instance, has proved that space and time are linked. Time would either speed up or slow down depending on the speed that you're going relative to some other object. Also, gravity can bend time. Time is therefore not some uniform phenomenon that is accurately represented by our normal experiences. In much the same way, cause and effect is not a uniform phenomenon that is accurately represented by our normal experiences. For example, radioactive decay gives us a really good way of measuring long time periods. The rate of decay for isotopes is constant and we know why they decay. What we don't know is what causes an individual atom in a sample to decay. For all we know, there is no discernible cause that would indicate which atom would decay next. Another example is on a quantum scale, the effects can precede the causes. This is especially significant because the inflation of our universe is best explained by the fluctuation of a quantum scalar field that moves from a false vacuum state to a true vacuum state. And when it does this, it releases an immense amount of energy that inflated the universe and transformed from inflaton particles into what would eventually become normal matter. After that point, the universe continued to expand. So my contention with a traditional cosmological so I think, let me make sure I have this timestamp right because my YouTube's done. Yes, this is um, good. So this is a good place to stop. Lots of great content to kind of look at here. Um, so what do you think, Josh? I think the first thing is to discuss kind of his usage of time here because I'm not really sure, like looking back at my notes retrospectively, I'm not really sure how, like whether I viewed it in the right way the first time around. Because the first time I heard it, I was like, well, is time, is the example of time really useful or applicable to our discussion about causality? Because it seems that what Alan is using is that Alan is using an inductive argument for causation. So he's like, okay, look at these certain things. I look at, I think he said, look at these phones or whatever he was saying. Like, look at certain things inductively and say, well, causation, there's this causal principle in the world. However, then you look at uh, GE's uh, use of time, which is, well, it, it's like this use of time does not really represent our understanding of, of, of reality or time, our understanding of time. Is it a very common sense understanding of time? Then, well, the question is, or like the situation is, is really, well, I think you have, well, what is actually uh, G arguing against? Is he arguing against uh, our inductive understanding 
to know about time, or is he arguing against kind of our our just our the existence of causality as a whole? I think there's two arguments that could be focused on, or which one is he actually arguing against? I think we have to kind of figure out which one he is doing here. Yeah, I, I, I was trying to think it like I was listening again is like he's talking about analogy and like well at least what I got from it was like he's kind of getting this idea of like we have this intuition of like cause and effect, like Parr gets its cell phone. It's like, yeah, it seems obvious. Like in this case, um, like there is a cause and, and of the cell phone. Um, but I think what GE is going to say is like, well, we have this intuition and like time is like this continuous flowing thing. Um, but then we can encounter these issues. With, like, I believe it's like special relativity um, where it seems like time kind of flows differently depending with like what's going on. And that's my very rough uneducated sketch of time. I don't know like anything about philosophy of time. Um, so then he's like, okay, well let's apply this to like, like a causal intuition where like, yeah, we have this like intuition, like the real world or not the real world, but like in our like experience of things where there's causes and effects, but when we get like far away from our ordinary experience, like how do we really know that's the case? Um, couldn't we just be wrong? Like we were about time, um, what and whatnot. So I think that's what John's getting at. Um, so I don't know if you had anything you want to add before we kind of respond to that. Cause I mean, I think there's a couple of things worth talking about. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I kind of got from this yeah. stuff of like mm-hmm. his, his, his worry, which is a fair worry. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think uh, we could perhaps talk a bit about the radioactive decay and the retro causality that he talks about. And I have to admit, both of these are completely beyond my field of expertise. I, I, I wasn't really, I've never really looked into any of the literature surrounding those two ideas before, before I've seen this video. So I, I have to, I'm a bit of a novice. But then when he says there's actually no causes or no like understanding for retroactive decay, I think we can start there. There's actually, and, and I know I'm being a bit of a nerd saying this, but Google causes, if you Google causes for radioactive decay, there's actually 27 million different results that you actually find. And, and one of the biggest kind of causes for radioactive decay is actually the idea that there is actually an instability between protons and neutrons. So then you basically have this idea of kind of protons and the atom where you have these like negative charge things going around positive charge things or it's the other way around. And, and when they, those things are like in, ba- in balance or there's some instability there, then you have radioactive decay, natural thermodynamics and the imbalance of energy, everything moves towards equilibrium at the end. So essentially you see that there is actually some reasoning behind why we have radioactive decay. We might not exactly know what exactly is the cause, but that's kind of like looking at gravity as well. We, are, we see ourselves sitting on the earth. It doesn't mean that we don't have any cause, it's gravity, there's a law behind it. And in the same way, while it's not completely like non-random there there is a certain process which the radioactive decay follows which follows an overall a law-like structure for example we can figure out the half-life of a radioactive kind of isotope or a radioactive like atom even if we don't exactly know exactly when it's going to happen we can create general half-lives in these systems around it Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just important to emphasize, like, in the case of radioactive decay, like, at least from my research, um, which is which is minimal, like, I'm not, like, an expert or in, in anything like this, um, radioactive decay, while random, still occurs at, like, a constant rate, um, so we don't know exactly what's going on, but there's, like, a good rate, which suggests that there is, like, some sort of, like, sufficient reason, um, at least in my mind, of what's going on, like, if, like, if radioactive decay was just a violation of, like, um, like the PSR, or like a strong causal principle, um, I don't think you'd see it occurring at a constant rate. Like the fact that it occurs at a constant rate seems to suggest that there is some sort of like sufficient reason um, for why these things occur, which would mean then that the causal broken causal principle um, would not be broken, which is one of my critiques of John, because he kind of just like, he talks about like, we have this like example in radioactive UK or like these weird things going on in the quantum world, um, but he doesn't explain how these things break the causal principle. He just kind of suggests that he does. Um, 
and like it's in that case, it'd be his burden to show how these things actually would break um, Parr's um, causal principle that he gives in the first part of his argument. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's also another thing, and, and this perhaps might be why there's this kind of idea that we're, we ha- we're kind of having two kind of different arguments here. I think it's because us and John is that I think John might view causality in a different way than we do. For example, we're more of like kind of the PSR sort, like we need a sufficient reason for things, whereas perhaps um, John is looking at it from more of a perspective of, well, there must be a physical material cause behind more of like that kind of causation instead of a principle of sufficient reason. So perhaps our, our usage of two different kind of causations might lead to some arguments working against some forms of causation and some definitions of causations, but then those arguments don't work against kind of like a principle of sufficient reason, which is a more broader understanding of causation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I wonder, because, like, um, this kind of gets into, like, the chancy events of, like, quantum phenomena. Like, there's this quote from Alex Proust I really like in his book, The Principle of Sufficient Reason, where he says, um, here we can invoke the principle that when we have given the causes of an event, we've explained why the event occurs. So it's kind of the idea that, like, we don't need, like, a deterministic um, explanation for there to be an explanation. Like, like like chancy events, like quantum indeterminacy, um, they're not violations of, like, the PS maybe like a super strong PSR that requires a deterministic a- application. Um, like with like restricted versions of the PSR, there's not this worry of there being like these indeterministic things because um, if we can invoke the principle, if we give them the cause of the event, we've explained why the event occurs, even if we've done it like indeterministically. Um, so John actually clarified in the chat, actually my argument is not everything requires a cause. And obviously like, I think we're going to challenge that. So, um, do you have anything else? Cause there's a couple more things I have in this clip, but not necessarily relating to like the radioactive decay and chancy events. Things. Sure. That sounds good. I think we could talk a bit about the retro causality of that's something that you talked about as well. But I think if we talk about the retro causality, once again, it's beyond my field of expertise, but I do think that even if you accept, um, retro causality, if it exists or not, and there's also definitions about how it exists, for example, tachyons, they're meant to be a form of retro causality, although they're actually not going back in time in the way that we think it's like kind of back to the future going back in time. It's more like going back in time relative to the viewer. So you have one viewer looking at the tachyon and that's like Einstein's relativity. You see it going back in time, but it's not technically theoretically going back in time in a common sense view of how it's going back in time because that's not really how like time actually works in reality. And and, uh, beside that point about kind of how retro causality might just be viewing things relatively going back in time, I think that another idea is that, well, it doesn't mean that cause and effect doesn't exist because retro causality has actually a causal structure to it. It's just, it's not going in the normal way we think. So it might not completely apply to um, to uh, the cosmological argument, at, at least as we defend it. Of course, it might change our understanding of causality, but it wouldn't be a defeat to the cosmological argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have too much to add on that. I would say like, um, like if John's point is actually that not everything requires a cause, mm-hmm. like there's some serious consequences, I think, of denying the PSR, like um, like a causal principle where saying things can happen literally without like any sort of explanation. Um, so just here's a couple of things. Well, one, it goes like against our basic intuition. Well, we kind of covered that and John responded to that. And, you know, you can do, do that if you wish. But like this idea of like things require causes, this is a foundation or pillar of modern science. Like part of the reason like we have like evolutionary biology is like we're searching for like why humans exist like you know if we say well not everything requires a cause maybe humans just exist there is no reason um if we're going to deny the causal principle like this is a very foundational thing where science looks for explanations of phenomena and if we're going to say well phenomena can occur without any sort of explanation well it seems like we're challenging like a foundational pillar of science 
Um, and then something that I'm not going to perfectly sketch out, but someone like Rob Coons does uh, is talking about like, well, things, not everything requires a cause. Well, then this could like even hurt like our experience. So like, let's say like, like right now, Josh, in my experience, I'm talking to you on a screen. I see a live chat. I have my notes right next to me. Um, but like, if not everything requires a cause, maybe I just have that experience for no reason. It's like a trip, like a bad trip, but there's no explanation for it. Like, I'm just like hallucinating for no reason at all. Um, in that sense, like, it seems like if not everything requires a cause, like that's a possible like situation. And like, then I'm gonna have to doubt like my own basic experiences about reality. Um, and I encourage you to check out Rob Coons. I'm trying to think of- It was a discussion with Graham Oppie, right? Yeah, there's this, but I don't think they cover that because like Graham Oppie accepts the PSR. Um, I think it's in, he did an interview with Soon Sana on intellectual mm -hmm. conservatism. That's where I think I'm getting this from. Um, so that's mm -hmm. really great. And he'll go into that in a lot better, like a better sketch out than I do. But like denying the PSR leads to like consequences where like, it seems like it's almost like challenging mm -hmm. science, going to challenge like our reliability of our experiences. Like it, it just seems like something that we don't want to do. There's a lot of consequences and a lot of baggage we don't want if we're going to deny the PSR. Perhaps I could play a bit of devil's advocate for John here, though I don't, I'm not really sure that's necessary because it's actually in the chat. But I think what he says when he says, actually, my argument is not that everything requires a cause. It's not that he's doubting the. I think he's more saying, perhaps, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's more like, well, there is a certain, most things do require causes, but there exists stuff which don't require causes. And our understanding of it should be less so, there must be a cause for everything, but we should be open to the idea that some things don't have a cause. And then there might be questions coming up from that. However, I do agree the idea that it is unreasonable for us to think that just from induction and all of our under every every other understanding. And the question here, I think, that when we talk about Godless Engineer's argument, when he says actually my argument is not that everything requires a cause, I hope maybe what I said previously wasn't very clear, but I was more questioning, well, what exactly do you mean when you say cause? Like kind of a more meta view of that statement, because I think that you could say, well, yeah, it's true that every, not everything requires a cause under the definition that everything requires a materialistic kind of demonstrable, ordered, structured cause, which would then, by definition, like put out or allow these kind of quantum examples that John uses to be a proper counter or a defeater to our argument or this definition of a cause. However, if we define it more of a principle of sufficient reason, us being able to find like order, like apparent order in the in in quantum in in radioactive decay for us to be able to find these rules which or reasons for a quantum or radioactive decay to occur if we be able, if we take perhaps a principle of sufficient reason a broader understanding of the cause we don't necessarily need to have this kind of physical kind of understanding of what is actually causing radioactive decay the sufficient reason the the explanation for why these causes occur would be a sufficient reason for us to believe that a cause exists and that counterexample would not defeat this version of the cause, but would defeat the original version of the cause. So there might be like kind of a disagreement about what cause means here. Mm. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a pretty good setup. Um, there's more that could be said. Um, mm -hmm. The only other thing I want to touch on with this bit is he talks about like the quantum vacuum again. Like we go from like a false vacuum state to a true vacuum state. And maybe like that's the inflation of our universe. And like we're getting into more of this where he rightfully brings up like the gout problem. But I do want to say like, I think like, at first, if like I think a quantum vacuum, like proposing that, that's a much more complex necessary hypothesis than like the theistic hypothesis. Like if we're like if we're theists, we can say everything comes from perfection, um, and all the attributes of God and things, um, they flow from perfection. Whereas if we're gonna have a quantum vacuum, 
um, opening the door where there's going to have to be some sort of like elementary particles, um, including things like electrons, quarks, photons, gluons, antiparticles. Um, you're going to need energy to bring this thing into existence. You're going to have to particles that borrow energy. Um, and there's questions like how many particles are they are? Why are they the laws the way they are? Um, why are these limits, which we're going to get into in a minute? But like, it seems like to me, like when, it's a fair thing to look at. Like, it seems like a much more complex hypothesis to pose is all this exists uncaused rather than like one thing, which is like something that's just perfect. Um, but I mean, we can get into that more when we get into uh, the, the part where he criticizes um, stage two of cosmological arguments and such. Um, so I don't know if you have anything else you want to say, Josh, before we look at the next clip. Uh, nothing to add here. Okay. So here's a short clip where he's going to talk about having a natural cause for the inflation of the universe logical argument is that not everything that exists necessarily has a cause. Two, I agree that something happened to inflate our universe, but because nature doesn't require a god in order to function, I think that it most likely happened naturally. Okay, so this is really helpful, and I actually... You heard that, right? I didn't mean that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't pull that up. So I'm so sorry, John. We didn't get to see your beautiful face um, for that little clip right there. Um, but so he talks about we don't need a god. We have some sort of natural cause, which is a really helpful argument. But what are your thoughts here? on this idea, Josh? I think it's actually an argument which very, ref it, it reflects the original argument that Alan Parr raises, is the idea that you could first kind of be a more logical kind of a nerd here and say it perhaps commits the fallacy of composition just to say that everything, the classic argument against the cosmological arguments might have turned against this one. It's like, well, just look at everything in nature. Those things don't require a cause or a god. I think it was a god, yeah. Everything in nature doesn't require a god. Therefore, the universe itself doesn't require a god. That's a bit of a leap. But furthermore, it's there is still no evidence for us to suggest that nature doesn't require a god because, like, for example, you see my 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 splint here on the screen or maybe my, uh, my jug of water. There's nothing actively creating this all the time. But that doesn't change the fact that it was probably created in a factory or some pottery person made it and like sketched this painting on it. So there's, so I think it's it's different to say, well, let's look at nature and say, well, there this doesn't require God to constantly maintain it. But but then let's say, well, okay, that nature itself didn't require God to happen. There's a difference between the act of creation or the initial stage of the the ex nihilo kind of development of something and the actual the individual elements or the parts of its existence. There's a difference there. So just looking at one would not imply anything about the causality of the other. Yeah. So there's this really good book I read over vacation called Is God the Best Explanation of Things by um, Felipe Leon and Josh Rasmussen. So Leon's like an agnostic, maybe I think he's agnostic. Um, and Josh Rasmussen, he's a Christian. They kind of look at like different like issues. Um, and one of the things Leon brings up that's really interesting is he's he's so he's okay with the principle of sufficient reason and there being some sort of like necessary like being or fact or item, whatever you want to call it. But he says, okay, so we have these like intuitions supporting like a causal principle. All these same things could be used to support something which he calls the principle of material causality, the PMC, where we say like everything requires a cause because you know it's like intuitive, it's not our experience. And Leon's like, well, hey, everything in our experience also has a material cause, um, which is kind of I think what Josh is not Josh, sorry, John's getting at, where, like, we have this, like, cause and effect role in nature um, of things that have causes, and it seems like, well, why posit something beyond um, that natural order to explain the inflation of the universe? And there's a few things that could be said here. Like, one of my big issues is, like, natural means so many different things in different contexts. So, like, in this book I read with, like, Leon, he talks about, um, in one of the early chapters, like, here's varieties of naturalism. Um, he has, like, the hard eliminated materialist, where it's, like, um, it's like, you know, it's like this mind independent stuff that's physical, um, 
consciousness is ultimately reduced to brain states and he's like a moderate naturalism and then he has like a liberal naturalism which is what he endorses where it's like okay well conscious where he's like a cosmopsychist i think and like a monist and like all these different things and like leon considers himself a naturalist and like he's not a christian by any means he's an agnostic and i wonder like at that point like i don't think john's gonna like endorse the liberal naturalist like flavor but like there's certain like labels that we ascribed to naturalism which i think would be totally compatible with theism like josh at one point is like i like what you're saying with this liberal natural naturalism stuff let's just make it supreme um and then we basically have theism there um so i would say that like depending on your definition of a natural cause like that might be totally compatible with like a theistic like flavor um so that's kind of like one of my things and then like obviously like i lean towards like i'm very sympathetic towards like idealism so i'm gonna say that like minds and the product of minds is all that exists so why pose this like mind independent thing at the foundation when I have this like um, mind hypothesis that seems to fit quite well with our experience and whatnot. Um, so it almost be like then John's posing this super mind hypothesis, something beyond minds, which is something we have no awareness of. Um, so there's just, there's just a few different thoughts on the natural cause for the inflation of the universe. I don't know what you think, Josh. I think that sounds very fascinating. I, I haven't read much of Leon's work or Josh Rasmussen's work, and I'll add that to my bucket list of books. You gotta I get have off to of um, Frederick Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. You know? Yeah, exactly. I've been going through all the existentialist writers these days, and that's kind of <laughs> blasted my library completely to like absolute shreds. So, I mean, yeah, I'll have to add that to my list. And I haven't touched cosmological arguments for ages, actually. Doing this video also helped me go back into the archives and bring out a few books. So, that was very helpful. So, yeah, I had nothing much more to add. Mm -hmm. So it's really going to depend. And one other path I'd say is like um, Josh brings up this point in the book of like responding to the PMC, which is something that's kind of like almost like what John's saying, where it's like, well, if causal finitism is true, well, then we have a really good reason to think, um, well, maybe the PMC is false because um, then we'd have like potentially matter beginning to exist. And then like that material explanation path um, might be in a lot of trouble. Um, so yeah, but let's get into this next part, which fits quite well, where John's going to say that there's no reason to think that infinite regresses are impossible. There's no logical reason to think that infinite regresses are impossible. And for the... Okay, so, it, like, obviously, like, he's just, like, passing on saying this. Like, he didn't really defend it, which is totally fine. Um, but, like, what are your thoughts on, like, obviously you, like, gave, like, a TEDx talk on, like, the nature of infinity or something, Josh. So Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, I have to admit that that talk was a bit boring. I probably chose the wrong topic for doing that talk. I should have talked about my experience in military camp or something like that. But but honestly, I think uh, I think there's a few ways you can go around talking about the infinity. And, and there's, like, paradoxes, which I'm sure most viewers would have heard of. These are, like, the dichotomy paradoxes, the Grim Reaper paradoxes, the Hilbert's Hotel one. There is a variation of the Hilbert's Hotel, which I formulate, which which I think is actually perhaps a bit better than the Hilbert's Hotel, especially for demonstrating kind of time and how crazy it is. But essentially, there's a variety of these different paradoxes, but there's also conceptual arguments. And I think the conceptual arguments are very interesting because Hilbert's Hotel and stuff are kind of like dependent on kind of illustrations of the world, but these conceptual arguments are kind of based on just the nature of what these sets are. So if we talk about infinity and math, a lot of people like to say, well, these infinity could be demonstrated mathematically, and the answer is correct. You can see a lot of forms of infinity in mathematics. There's uh, ALF null, ALF1, ALF2, like there's an infinite number, an infinite set of different infinite ordinals and cardinals of these ALF numbers. And the question is, is well, are those what we see in reality? Because if we look at it like this, is that, well, these ALF numbers are not just there is one infinity. 
there's two infinite. There's an infinite amount of different infin infinities. And if someone says, well, the past was infinite, the answer should be, well, what on earth it does it mean? Which Aleph number is your past? Is it Aleph one? Is it the is it the infinity of the real numbers? It's, is it the infinity of the of the integers? Like which infinity are you talking about? Because there's an infinite amount of infinities. And furthermore, and this is kind of one of the reasons why when Cantor first formulated the infinities, he didn't view them as anything which was existing in concrete. So he had more of a, a bit more, and there's debates about this, but he had a bit more of a Platonic understanding, kind of like Platonic ideas. It was never meant to be a representation of that which is in reality. Furthermore, if we develop kind of set theory further, we see that set theory is actually meant to be some demonstration or the creation of formats in kind of mathematical or logical space, like Wittgenstein's idea of everything's existing in like a logical space that we're drawing things down from. And with that in mind, when we talk about like the infinity that we discussed today, the, the structured infinity that we find in the Zermelo-Franco set theory and stuff like that, we see them as kind of these conceptual realities that we're talking about rather than anything in reality. So when someone says, well, the infinity is possible, it's definitely possible. But then that kind of possible is talking about mathematical discussion and not about kind of what we're talking about or what we're seeing in reality. So, so there's this kind of like difference between what is infinity and what is reality. There's a separation because they're talking about two different spheres entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I just add a little bit because like I'm not really an expert on infinity. Um, but I would say like even it's like Graham Oppie, like the greatest atheist today, he is more like he doesn't say causal um infinitism is like impossible but he leans towards causal finitism just because of like simplicity so like just thinking about it like from a simplistic argument like what's simpler to say like the past is infinite um so you go back like a billion years well there's another 18 billion years another 18 trillion years before like it just keeps going and going and going or to say that there's just some sort of like first begin like a beginning it's like some sort of first cause like it seems like to me like the causal finitist like path is just simpler like intuitively and like even if it wasn't, like, cosmological arguments can still run. Like, obviously, like, the Kalam, like, Par gives here, like, that's dead if, if you can't show that, like, there's a finite path. But then, like, there's, like, Thomistic arguments, there's contingency arguments, and there's even, like, inductive arguments, which I've been actually really interested in recently, like, reading Swinburne. Um, so cosmological arguments aren't dead in the water, um, even, if if, even if infinite regresses are possible. Um, so there, there's just a few things. Um, but I don't really have too much else to say. Um, so yeah, you have anything else before we get into this uh, last clip? Uh, yeah, actually, I'll, I'll talk about one or more of the arguments because that kind of slipped my attention just now when I was looking through the notes. But essentially, it's the idea that, well, look at everything around you right now. Like, look at what features in reality, the physical world. What we And I think this is why we see so many problems with Hilbert's hotel and all these different like kind of paradoxes that arise. Like, look at the features in our physical world. I think we can create a few different kind of axioms that we see is that magnitude in the universe are somewhat objective in the sense that, well, this thing has a certain size and they're diverse. Like there's a lot of different sizes. The book's a different size from my bookmark and there's a lot of different like kind of uh, magnitudes to it. But then you can also define or switch or create relationships between these um, different objects in these different sizes. For example, this thing is bigger than this. You can know objectively that this thing is bigger than this one, right? And you can objectively figure out that these are kind of, or at least they're meant to be the same size. Now, with that in mind, you have to look at that. We can form these kind of at least simple rules of how the universe works. And it's that, well, we can say that X is the same size as Y, or X is not equal to Y, and X is bigger than Y. They're not equal. And you can find these different relationships. The same could go for time. 
to some degree. And it doesn't matter whether you can go back in time or whatever retrocausality you want to look at. It's like, well, a passage of time this week is obviously longer than one day. Like you can create these kind of differences as well. And, and then you look at it and look at Aleph and, and infinite mathematics, it creates a completely different system. It's not just saying, well, we're continuing our understanding of finite arithmetic. We're positing a completely different system. And that system is completely incompatible with our finite mathematics. That's not to say the system is wrong. It's just to say that that system is completely different. It's completely otherwise from the mathematics and the world that we're working right now. We're talking about a different entire form of numerals. We're talking, and numerals in the, in the broadest sense, we're talking about a different set of numbers. We're talking about a different number of ideas, which are completely detached from our current world. And as a result, it would be wrong to say that they both can be or I think it's just incorrect for us, to, or there at least there are problems for us to say, well, that kind of understanding is happening in our world right now because there are definitely some contradictions or there are definitely some kind of differences there which are kind of difficult to put on top of together because what we realize, what we see in reality are not reflecting to the system that transfinite arithmetic kind of posits. So there's some inconsistency there. Hmm. I think that's another way to look at it. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Um, so let's get to this last step where he's going to talk about um, saying God is uncaused and like special pleading and building a bridge and lots of really interesting stuff here. The argument is ultimately just special pleading. The cosmological argument specially pleads that God didn't need a creator or didn't need a cause. And so therefore he is the ultimate cause for everything. Even if you grant that everything has a cause and we come to the conclusion that the universe has a cause, it would be a giant leap in logic to suppose that a God is that cause. And if everything requires a cause, why doesn't God require a cause? You see, you have to leap from the universe has a cause to God is that cause. You need to build a bridge using evidence that connects the beginning of the universe to God. Apologists simply never do this. Now, let me just kind of break that down in layman's terms. Let's just say we have this phone right here. So I don't think John like directly implied that it like meant to do this, but like Josh Rasmussen has this really good book, How Reason Can Lead to God, and he talks about building a bridge um, from being there being the necessary being to God. Um, he, like, he always uses this analogy of like the bridge and like he's building the bridge and strengthening the bridge and whatnot. Um, so it's kind of funny. Um, I'm not saying that like, but like I just love that because it reminded me of Josh's book, which I love. Um, but I'll just kind of take this first. And like, I think John's critiques are fair. Cause especially like when you look in, in one sense, cause like, if you look at like Alan Parr's argument, like he's saying the universe, be, if the universe began to exist, like then God caused it. Well, like he just throws that in there. Like he gives no, and like obviously it's a short video, but he gives no justification for like, well, if the universe begins to exist, like why is it God? Um, and this is why I think it's really helpful to look at like cosmological arguments in two stages. So the first is like kind of establishing, um, well, there's some sort of like necessary thing, something that isn't like, that doesn't depend on anything else, something that exists on cause. This could be like your quantum scalar field or like ma matter energy, um, or like theist is going to say God. Um, like we can all agree and like shake hands and have a hurrah, um, all agreeing on stage one, that there's something that exists like that's like necessary, uncaused, and it's responsible for our universe. Um, and in stage two is when the theist is going to say, well, this is something um, personal, something like God. Um, and like, you know, like, so you can agree on stage one, disagree on stage two. So that's why I think it's helpful to, um, break it up. Obviously, like, I don't think it's special pleading because I'm not going to accept that everything that exists has a cause, um, which is what, I don't know if John like meant to say begins to exist or whatnot. But, like, I don't think that everything that exists has a cause. Like take numbers, for example, uh, if you think like math, math, maths are like real. Um, so there's a few things. And then like, obviously like we can get into different arguments. Um, so like when I did my debate with John, 
in like March or April, I spent most of the debate trying to get from like there being a first cause to God. So like there's different things like like limits or fine tuning your consciousness or moral knowledge um, or like the intuitive theism, which I think are really good reasons to think that this first cause or foundation is God rather than like a quantum field or something like that. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things and I just think it's helpful to really kind of divide the argument into two stages um, so that we can really build bridges and whatnot. So yeah, what do you think, Josh? I completely agree with you on that. And I have to admit, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know anything about kind of, I, I do know a bit about it. I think there are different ideas or different ways for, for you to get from beginning and causes to kind of what we see in reality. But, but I do think that, uh, I think you're definitely know more about it than I do. However, there is something which I thought Craig did really well. And this is more specifically for, um, the, the Kalam argument, or at least the Kalam variation of the cosmological argument, where he says, well, let's look at, assume there is actually necessary being, and there is a timeless state and a timed state. Well, it seems that there requires to be a personal kind of person or a personal uh, distinction, which makes, which changes the timeless to the timed, because there has to be some cause which changes from, especially if we continue our PSR, it's like, well, there has to be what, what makes the nothingness, what makes the timeless, timed and something there is a personal relationship between whatever caused it before to what we see now and that points towards or posits like a very godlike kind of understanding or or anyone who has any serious or at least initial or common sense understanding would posit that as god if you said well what is imagine there's nothing and then there's something imagine there's no time and there's time that is a very like theistic kind of notion or a very theistic kind of view of causation i think and that's quite interesting Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, I want, like, explanation to go as far as we can. Like, I'm not really content with saying, like, well, there's, like, this, br- like, this is why, like, it's, like, not as popular, I think, now. But I'm very, like, I'm a fan of, like, unrestricted PSRs where we can ask, like, what explains necessary truths. Because um, some people want to stop it, like, well, we just can't explain something that's necessary. It's just a brute fact. Um, like, God's a brute fact. But, like, I don't know. I'm very, like, sympathetic to, like, unrestricted PSRs where we could really say, well, like, well, why does God exist? Well, I'm going to say, like, well, the foundation has to be perfect for some reason. This is, like, very theoretical. Um, so if you're ever, someone decides to respond to this, don't respond to this part. Cause I'm just like thinking out loud here, but like, I'm very sympathetic. Like, I feel like there has to be an answer to the question of like, why does God exist? Like, it's not just a brute fact. Um, that's just me kind of like thinking out in the distance. I don't really know what that answer would be. Um, but yeah, so unrestricted PSRs. Yeah. That's where I got that from. Yeah. I think that's quite interesting. I'll have to think a bit more about that. I think that what you're touching on about some idea of perfection of God, I think that's a very existentialist kind of notion, but and quite interesting. I'll have to think about that a bit more in my in my time as well. But it's it's been it's it's been quite interesting kind of discussing this, and I ha- and I have I have to admit I have to read more about the second stages of cosmological arguments because I think in academia we're moving away from this idea that there is no necessary kind of cause to there is a necessary cause, and that's a lot due to Opie's work and stuff like that. Now we're saying, well, how do we move from that necessary cause to God? And that's quite an interesting thing to do as well. And the second stage of the cosmological argument kind of moves it that way. Though I do think that adding upon this is that even if you don't have the second stage, at least it demonstrates that there is some rational belief to posit a God. While it's not necessarily God has to be the cause, at least there is some reason for people to believe in God, because it's like kind of, if we talk about epistemology for a bit, it's like, well, what exactly is justified belief or what exactly is a reasonable belief to hold? You, there is certain degrees where you get to a certain point in the argument and, and you could, yes, at times push it further and further and further. But, but there's always a point where some people just get convinced and you're like, well, well, is it an, are they irrationally believing in it or are they not irrationally believing in it? Some people could get to the climb, get to the necessary being, and then rationally that's cause. And maybe if they get told other things that might change that rationality of their belief in God. 
But for some people who just view it and reach this necessary cause, they could as very much rationally believe that that is God. And I think that there's definitely a possibility for that kind of just to sustain their faith. And I find it very difficult to kind of argue against kind of just getting to a necessary cause and people believing it's God. Of course, there's a second problem, but I mean, depending on how much information they're given, I think they could rationally believe in God from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because like then it's going to find like, how do you define God? And like, there's all these questions. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm just very sympathetic to like building bridges. Like if you're like a skeptic listening to this or you're John, like I'm just really curious, like, are you like, would you accept stage one? Like you don't even have like, you can accept stage one. There's some sort of something necessary. And you don't even have to give up your belief that like infinite regresses are um, impossible or impossible. Like you, like you can believe in the possibility of infinite regresses and still believe in a necessary cause. Like that's what contingency arguments are for. Um, and I think like some people, like I think Alex Proust would, uh, maybe he changed his mind. Um, say like infinite regresses are possible. Um, but he obviously like believes in that sort of thing. Um, but like we'll save that for another day. Um, Josh, do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap things up here? No, sounds absolute. It's been an absolute pleasure doing this video with you. Like always, it's been really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed this video a lot. Um, John is awesome. Really great. He brings up great points. I really enjoyed like doing the notes for this video because there's just so much fun stuff to think about. And like, we're just probing like these deep questions of reality together. And like, we have different perspectives. Um, but we are just coming together and making each other better and looking at this. That's been a lot of fun. Um, so Josh, um, your channel isn't added, but it's linked below. Um, cause YouTube's dumb. So maybe one day YouTube will change its mind. You can check out apologetics for all <laughs> lots of great content. Um, it's been a lot of fun. And to John, if, if you're listening, um, you're awesome. You're great. Hope you enjoyed this video and to everyone else, to Charles, to Kelvin, everyone else. Thank you for tuning in. Um, have a good one and God bless everyone. Goodbye.